The knock on radio, of course, is that it's old school. Of course, the real truth is that radio is accepted as everywhere. It's been around for a while, right? So it's the standard in audio and the other new and shiny things come along here, there, and everywhere to capture imagination. But what about radio? What about radio can capture the imagination in the innovation century to come? Welcome to our Wednesday live event, Innovation in Audio. Today, right now, in just a few minutes, we're going to talk to our guest, Fred Jacobs. If you don't know Fred and you are in the radio business, you've probably been hiding under a rock, but not a rock because Fred kind of owns that. In case you think it is unusual for me to invite a radio person on innovation and audio, that's correct. I don't generally do that. So you just must know there's some special reason that I would invite somebody like Fred to innovation and audio. I think you're going to find out. But before we get started with Fred, I look, I, I want to share with you upcoming guests coming to the Encouragers, the radio rally every Monday night here on the Clubhouse app. January 24th, that is next week. I can't even believe it's just whizzing right by. Mike Savage, the director and general manager of 88.9 WEKU in Lexington, Kentucky, will be with us. He's going to give us a different perspective on things. On January 31st, Grover Collins will be here. He is the program director of WUBE and WYG. GY in Cincinnati, and you can bet he's got some things to share with us. Connect with the people that you see on stage tonight and look around the room and connect with others here. You know, we think that this particular thing that we have developed where we get here every Monday and every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific is a great opportunity to mix it up with people who believe in innovation and audio and radio at all different levels. Encouragement is our real purpose. Networking is a big part of that, and we always want to encourage you to network regularly and kind of invent ways that you can connect with other people in our industry and, frankly, in innovation itself. By the way, this is a live event that will become a podcast episode for the Encouragers Innovation and Audio podcast, available on Apple, Audible, Spotify, and just about any anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast and for Just Joe Productions because those folks, they're creating our audio footprint and distributing our podcast. Now, let us prepare to talk with Fred Jacobs. I want to tell you about him. Uh, here is the kind of things that are kind of said about Fred. Detroit-based broadcaster, researcher, consultant, digital strategist, connected car guy, and student of the game. I'm a frequent speaker, he says, on all topics and love exchanging ideas with bright, engaged people who are trying to figure it all out. Fred Jacobs, by the way, launched Jacobs Media in 1983 by creating and popularizing the classic rock radio format. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, they added the Edge alternative rock format to stations across the United States. Over time, they expanded into public radio by providing guidance for local stations as well as networks like NPR and PRI. In 2004, now listen closely to this, Fred conducted the first 
tech survey, a study examining the ways audiences engage with new technology like smartphones and social networks. So that's a little bit on Fred, right? Fred, welcome to the Encouragers Innovation and Audio. How are you, sir? I'm great, Lloyd, and I really appreciate the invitation. It feels like we've been talking about this for months. We kind of have, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the fact tonight is here. This is great. And I I love the fact it's a live event, which is cool. Well, and it's really great because it's also a podcast. And you did an event earlier today. I got to attend, which was really cool. Uh, Something that you do pretty regularly. Listen, we know the story of some consultants, right? How they got started, how they climbed to become, let's call them more well-known. Take us back to the beginning. With you, I'm going to ask about your parents. I know it's kind of a left turn, right? Who were your parents and what did they do professionally, Fred? So uh, Sid and Joan. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, Joan uh, had the uh, exciting task of uh, raising three boys. And uh, Lloyd, you know, some of the others uh, on this clubhouse probably do too. We all work together right? in addition to uh, having grown up together. So that's kind of wild. My dad was kind of like the George Bailey of his family, right? I mean, everybody's seen It's a Wonderful Life, especially uh, lately. And he kind of got caught up after the war in getting into the family business to help his dad, and it was not a particularly good business. They sold paper and plastics products, and meanwhile, his other brothers went on to become dentists. So very hmm. much, yeah, very much like that George Bailey thing. But he was a hardworking guy, and he was a great guy. And I think because he was never really in love with what he did, he encouraged us to find a profession that we really enjoyed, that we could make a living at. <laughs> there, there was always always that little caveat, of course, you yeah. make a living at, right? Um, but yeah, that, that was always his advice, and we all took it very seriously. I'm the oldest of the three, so, you know, I obviously had the machete out pretty much all the way. And, uh, you know, he never really attended college after after the war. So I didn't have a whole lot of guidance except just kind of uh, follow your heart and do something that you like. And here we are. Well, it's really interesting. And I don't know if anyone has ever said this to you, but who are those tombstone guys of the Wild West? Uh, um, uh, what are their names? Uh, uh, Wyatt Earp? And his yeah, brothers. And, and, this is how I think of you and your brothers. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm just put that out there for you yeah. to think about while I ask these questions. I mean, because you all are kind of riding together. It's the OK Corral, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And you, no, no shooting, but <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's what that's what makes radio so fun and like battle, but nobody dies. Exactly. I nobody like gets that. nobody gets killed. There's no blood. It's great, right? All right. So listen, you'll see me add ingredients across this interview with you in the form of questions. I want answers, Fred. Are you a naturally curious guy? If so, were you always curious? Yeah, I think so. Um, there was always I, I curious, definitely uh, inventive, 
definitely as as well. So yeah, I I was never particularly good at science or that kind of thing, but I was always a curious mind, and I read uh, a lot, especially as a kid, and and kind of tried to figure stuff out. So yeah, I and and of course that helps. Uh, in in doing what what we do, I mean, when you're in the content creation part of it, and even yeah. as a consultant, even though I'm not a program director anymore and I haven't been one forever, I'm I'm still creating content, whether it's my blog or whatever the case may be. So, yeah, it, having uh, a curious mind really comes in handy. Of course, it can get you in trouble, but uh, that's kind of the fun, right? Well, that's kind of like getting in the radio business. That's how. That's what got me in this trouble to begin with. Yes, exactly. God right. Bless. I mean, I mean, we we must all be sort of danger rangers or whatever, or we wouldn't be doing this. This is not the easiest, most linear way to make a living. Uh, you know, between all the moving that people tend to go through and just the ups and downs of the business, uh, you better like it. Um, but. I think that curious mind piece is is a really good question because it it comes in handy in in ways that you can't even imagine. I also think it's powerful when you're looking at employees and potential employees because you can't train somebody to be curious. Not not really. Right? No, they either right. They, they be, right. They've either got it or or they don't. And you can usually tell over a dinner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can. I mean, and, and look, the other part of it, I think, in that interview process, I, I, I learned this along the way as well. Um, you know, don't hire somebody who you don't want to have dinner with. I mean, that's right. Right. That part part of the joy of bringing somebody onto your team is to be able to actually go out and have a nice meal and enjoy the conversation and you know, maybe here's some ideas or, or points of view that you don't have. So I think a lot of people trying out for jobs, if that's fair to say, they miss that part of the equation. That's a big deal. Yeah, right? it, 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 it is. And I think there's that tendency to try and agree with the interviewer. And uh, I'm not looking for agreement. I mean, the, the secret to me having a successful consulting business really from the beginning has been to hire to my weaknesses. I mean, that if you look, yeah, if you look at the people I brought in over the years from Lori Lewis to Tom Calderon uh, to Mike Stern to Seth Ressler, they all do things that either I cannot do, I don't want to do, or I just have no aptitude for. But sometimes they open your eyes to things, right? Oh, big time. And and look, that's, that's part of their role. Is, is to show me stuff or bring things to me that I would just never, ever think about on my own. I mean, that that's where the gold is. I mean, look, you know as a consultant, one of the keys is the ability to be able to hear something, whether it's an idea or a piece of audio or whatever, and and react to it in a way that, that is sort of that realization, like, there's something here. I mean, right. right. I mean, maybe, maybe whoever's doing it isn't doing it quite the way that they could be, but there's a kernel of something here. And if I can just figure out what that is and make it better and find the right people who would be able to make this work, that's the gold. 
Yeah. Well, well, listen, I, I sometimes have my own language for things. Okay. So when something, when I hear something that kind of tweaks me a little bit, I say that it makes me itch and you just did it a few minutes ago and I'm going to go back and backtrack it. I hope it is not going to be uncomfortable for you. Did you show up on the encouragers and say that you were not good at science (laughs) <laughs> and and listen, you're a researcher. <laughs> I mean, I mean that's the first thing I thought. I was like, wait, wait, no, wait. You're that oh, guy. Well, right? Look, let let me add to it. I'm not yeah. good at I'm not good at science, and I'm not good at math. And and okay, so here's something about me that you don't know. So I was admitted to the University of Michigan in 1968. I had no idea what I was getting into. I I went to a high school that was not a particularly good one, so I was not all that prepped. And I probably was in that Mm -hmm. last percentile that they let you in. And uh, I got kicked out of school after two years. I think I had about a 1.7 average. Mm -hmm. And in the process of talking my way back into school, and uh, I even brought my mother up with me on the third and last shot that I had just to demonstrate that I was serious. And the beauty of it was not only did they let me back in, but the year that they let me back in, they came up with a new degree program called a Bachelor of General Studies. And basically (laughs) what that allows you to do is take whatever classes you want and avoid the classes that you're not particularly good at or don't care about. And so for me, it was like a dream come true. I, I could take all the American history and journalism and speech classes that I wanted to and leave the science behind. But the reason I'm a good researcher has nothing to do with science or math. I, I kind of think about myself as sort of a data whisperer in terms of I can look at a data set or a spreadsheet or charts or that kind of thing and in almost instantaneously, I can see stuff. I can. So wait. So it tells you a story. That's correct. You can you can see the story in the data. That's correct. And you know, if you've seen my tech survey presentations and that kind of thing, when I'm on my game, that's what's going on. I mean, it's the right. story behind the numbers. It's it's not just a bunch of charts. It's, you know, what's going on here? What's the narrative? And, yeah, storytelling actually becomes a big part of it. Oh, no, we called you here for the story, Brad. How (laughs) did you come in contact with radio specifically? You realize, Lloyd, this is a book. And I don't mean mean the me part. I, I think that question is the really great question that, I mean, I use it as an icebreaker when I meet new people in radio, whether it's a new owner or program director or an air personality. I mean, all you have to do is go, what happened? Uh, tell me the you story. Know, what happened to you? Yeah, whatever, yeah, exactly. Explain yourself. Uh, but, but how did you end up here? How, how did you happen to get into this line of work? And of course, people love to talk about themselves, but everybody has a unique story and really no yes. two are alike. And so mine is very different, unlike so many people in radio who knew when they were 11 <laughs> that, right. That, 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 right, and hung out at the local radio station in town. I was not that kid. I always loved music. 
And I, I did a lot of research on music in college. A number of term papers were about the Beatles and Woodstock and all those kinds of things. Um, but I, I didn't quite make the connection, believe it or not, until I uh, graduated from Michigan. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do from there. And I had a cousin who lived here in Detroit who was working at Channel 7, which was the ABC affiliate. And I kind of started hanging out with her and kind of got into the media vibe. And uh, one thing led to another. I went to Michigan State to get a master's degree in telecommunication. And the weird story behind that is when they accepted me, they said, look, you're in the program, but the problem is you have no background in beginning TV and radio production. So you're going to have to take undergraduate courses for no credit. And I thought, okay. Oh, but, no. But that's okay. I get it. I mean, this is the way the department requirements are. And so I took the TV production class thinking, wouldn't it be cool to make great news documentaries and investigative reporting? And I took the TV class and hated it. Did oh. not like the idea of being dependent on a bunch of other people to make a production. I'm, I'm more of an independent, let me just do it kind of guy. And then they said, well, now it's time to take the radio course. And I said, you know, let me skip that. I'm sure it's not going to be any better than the TV classes. And they said, you can't skip it. You made a commitment. You got to go. And I got in there. And the first day I was in there, I mean, it was like, you know, we all get, what, Lloyd, maybe five teachers in our entire life who are truly inspirational. And, and Jim, Jim Respers was this guy. And he, he just loved radio so much and turned me on to it. And it was like uh, two or three classes in. I remember calling my, my parents and going, hey, I got a birthday coming up. I, I want you to buy me a reel-to-reel tape deck. And well, of course. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've got to edit tape in my room. You know, that's what I'm going to do, oh. sit there with my headphones on and edit stuff. But that's how it got started. And, and I was with a great group of people. Uh, at Michigan State. Uh, back then, uh, it was the Union Building where the department was located, and on the top floor of the Union Building were the studios. And it was, it was like a cult. It was, <laughs> it was wow. like a rat, like a rat pack. It was so much fun, and there were a lot of talented people who just loved radio. And many of them have gone on to do some great things in the business. And so that was really it. And that's when I kind of knew I, this is how I want to spend my adult life is being in the radio biz. Okay, so now I'm going to really, uh, I'm really scratching my head, which no, you know that means I'm itching. Okay, you you come from a different place, I think. You, you started in research, is that true? That is true. And so I was older <laughs> at this point, and I was very self-conscious about it. I, th I was probably uh, 23, 24 by the time I got my master's degree. And I thought, God, I'm almost over the hill already. Oh, all that's these, so old, right? Right. Because all these radio people were 17 and they were way ahead of me. And so, you know, I did one of those kind of self-analyses and I, I listened to my voice and I decided, you know what, you might get as far as Muskegon, or if you're really lucky, Flint. But you're you're never going to be in big markets, and you're never going to be a real successful personality. And I never thought about programming because 
in those days you became a program director because you were a jock. And so I thought, God, there's got to be another way in. And so the weird thing is in the master's program at Michigan State, one required course, research methods. And I thought, ugh, this is bad, right? This is math. I mean, this is not going to be good. But here we go again. The professor, Dr. John Abel, who went on to work at the NAB, really bright guy. And he turned me on to this idea that, look, Fred, you like programming and you like to make stuff if you actually had the background of being able to understand what the audience wants and what their desires are. Just imagine how much better your programming could be. And, I mean, he, he lit oh, the bulb, man. I mean, it was like, oh, wow, exactly. How do we do this? And so uh, I, I dug into that. I got a, a research grant from uh, the NAB. Uh, ended up doing a controversial research study. And then from there, the only company back in those days that did audience research for radio or TV, I mean, now there's scores of them, but back That's then right. there was only one company, and that was the Frank Maggot Company in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, actually Marion, Iowa, to be exact. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dr. John said to me, this is where you got to go. This is the company if this is what you want to do, you got to go to work for these guys. And I interviewed three times over two years. And finally, on the third time, I got hired. My hair was too damn long. That was the problem. Uh, took me a while to kind of make that connection. Um, but, yeah, I got hired there, and then I flew off, and things started happening for me. But that, So, that, listen, yeah. uh, you, you got to tell me this. Okay, so... Tell us about how your background in research ended up being this transition into programming radio, because I think it's really important. I think what you said a few minutes ago is really important. Like for me, my family moved from the deep south. I had a a terrible southern accent. I went out to California and they sort of looked Mm -hmm. at me. They didn't say this, but they sort of were like, I think he's retarded. (laughs) And so they put me in a radio broadcast class and they put me in a speech class and it started me down a path that was rapid for me. I was a a freshman in high school. This is totally different for you. You're in college. You're, you're getting a master's degree and, and here you are headed directly toward research. But I can hear with these inspirational professors that you have, that they're literally sort of walking you down a path of through research gets you to programming. Yeah, so uh, what happens is um, I get a phone call. At at this point now, I'm running the uh, radio (laughs) research division for the company. That sounds better than it really was. There there was a lot of attrition. A lot of people left, and I was kind of – the last man standing. And so I started running the division and I got a call one day from Tom Bender, who was the program director of WRIF in Detroit. And uh, the nighttime lady was a former uh, student and friend of mine in Michigan State, Sheila Rushlow. And Tom was talking to the staff about, God, we got to get some research in in this place. And and back then, there wasn't a whole lot of research really being done at the station level. The, The thinking was, you have Arbitron, and that's your research. If you want to know how you're doing, 
that's how you figure it out. And so kind of like it is today in a lot of Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. so, right, we've gone all the way back to that. So yeah. Tom hires me, uh, or hires Maggot, and I assign myself to the project to do a study for Riff. And uh, Tom's boss, Jay Hoker, who was the general manager of the station, loves the study and finds it to be very clarifying. And I knew the station and the market really well, having grown up in Detroit. So Mm -hmm. it was probably a better study than we normally did. And uh, they thought, you know what, we could use a guy like you all the time. And so they hired me. And part of what I got to do was like everything in the radio station, which was great. And I kind of hung around with Bender back in the programming wing to a great degree, helping Mm -hmm. him with research. And the great thing was I learned from him. I mean, he was a mentor, he was a friend, and I got to kind of watch him make the decisions that program directors make on a daily basis. And, you know, sometimes I would, I would have maybe done something different than him. And other times it was like, yeah, he's doing the right thing here. But it was cool. I got to learn, you know, while somebody else was was pushing all the levers. Well, no, wait a minute. You here's you got a second master's degree. Yeah, that's, that's what exa- you got. No, that is exactly right. Um, without the lousy food and and everything yeah. else. So no, it was it was cool. And uh, when it was time for him to exit the station, uh, they called me in and they said, "Look, you've never programmed anything before, but you know the staff." You know the station. You know the situation. And the station was under a tremendous amount of pressure. The WLLZ, one of the um, – uh, oh, I'm blanking. Oh, this is terrible. Uh, mm. Double-day stations. There we go. Um, there was way into commercial freeness and, and the jocks being, like, not personalities at all. They were kicking, oh, yeah. our, they were kicking our butts, Lloyd. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just terrible. Here we were this – dominant ABC-owned station with all these disc jockeys, and we were having our lunch handed to us. So I got to take over the station at a really interesting and pivotal uh, time. And I I was good at it, but it was... It was definitely difficult for me. Well, well, let's talk about that. Most researchers, I'm going to say this real slow, Hmm. most researchers don't go and sit in the captain's chair, or in this case... They don't go program. Why did you do that? Because they asked me to, um, and and I really felt like it would probably be not it would probably not be a long life thing that I would do it long enough to hopefully turn the station around. And then I, I at this point I was working in New York at, at the corporate level for ABC, and I liked what I was doing for them. It was cool, and I liked New York, but. They they basically said, go back to Detroit, do what you got to do there, do the best you can, and then you can always come back to New York. And so I thought, cool. So, I mean, I kind of I, I kind of did it in sort of like a, a noncommittal way, but of course then I got here and I dove right in. I mean, as, as my dad used to say, you know, I could make running a lemonade stand stressful. And uh, Hey, listen, I'm going to say this about you. You seem really casual, but that is not who you are. Oh, once no. You dig, once you dig into something, I, I feel it. I feel an energy, and uh, you forgive me for saying this, as I flatter myself, uh, kinship with you. I know where you're going, right? 
I'm wound really tight, and yes. I am a perf- perfectionist, and I want it done a certain way, and I have a very high bar for myself and for people uh, who work for me, and I dove into oh, well, that. Oh, hell, this is why you went into programming right there. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it turns out I had all the DNA yeah. to really be a program director, and in a, in a certain way, I liked it. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I did enjoy the control part and putting on things and doing big things, and, and I was so lucky, man. I mean, working for ABC yes. in those days, I mean, we had everything. I mean, I, I was off the air as program director. I had an off-air APD, an off-air music oh. director, an off-air promotion director. We had marketing money. Uh, I mean, we we cut two or three original TV commercials every year. I mean, I, I had want you to know all. that people in our audience right now are passing out. They're freaking out. I know what you're saying. You know. You know what's really amazing about it? I mean, even back in 1981, I knew it was just amazing. I mean, it it was right. more than most stations had back then. I mean, there was no excuse for losing because we had all the tools and and we also had the best people, you know? I mean, we we had the best air staff, so we had to win. I mean, in, in a way, a lot of pressure there. But Absolutely. But it was cool. I mean, I, I really got to do some big stuff and fun stuff and and all that. Hey, listen, when people provide all the resources that you need and they really provide all the resources you need, there's a lot of pressure expected. Yeah. They want you to perform. Yeah. You better win. And and you better win the Super Bowl. I mean, right. just making the playoffs isn't going to be enough. So, yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Um uh, and then there was the pressure I put on myself, and which is after, always more, always more. And after two years, I waited for a, a great rating book, and then I I, I left. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listen. By the way, yeah, we have a lot to do with innovators uh, in research and data on this live event, Fred. I highly recommend, and I'm only talking to you right now. I highly recommend that if you have not checked out the Encouragers Innovation and Audio podcast episode with Howard Moskowitz, I, I want you to do that. He was a major disruptor in why and how grocery stores and food in general has massively changed globally. And the research that he did disrupted that industry again and again and again and has caused billions of dollars worth of wealth creation for the people who hired him, literally. Uh, do you see yourself as a disruptor or as someone who is defending against disruption? Oh, no, I'm a do- <laughs> That's a really easy one, Lloyd. Come on, uh, it's a softball. No, I'm, of course. I'm clearly a disruptor. I mean, look, you know, that's, that's what the classic rock format was all about. It was about blowing up uh, established album rock stations. So... No, I've 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 been a disruptor my entire career. I I have never worked for, you know, the iHearts and and the bigger companies. They're great. I love them, but that's not me. I'm definitely more of the underdog kind of guy, and I love disrupting stuff. I mean, to me, that's really what makes it fun is turning stuff on its side or even upside down. So. No, I, I relish that. I revel in that. That's what I do. I love that. Listen, uh, people today, 
uh, look, they think when you talk about the old days, you mean 1993. <laughs> but yeah. I'm just going to say, yeah. I, I want you to go back to when something called classic rock did not exist. What happened? How did you think, hey, you know what? This this thing, this is a big thing. Well, I, I didn't know it was a big thing, but I knew it was a thing. Okay. I'm I'm programming riff. It's uh, eighty two, <laughs> um, and we're getting research back that is kind of it, it cross purposes with itself, right? right. Uh, the target demo is twelve to thirty four. Back then, rock stations had a lot of teens, and that was okay. We could sell them back then. It was cool. We had uh, advertisers like Michigan Milk. <laughs> Right. Um, I mean, uh, pe- people who would never advertise on the radio today. So uh, that was the demographic. And what I started noticing is that the teens would hear us play the Beatles and the Stones and Zeppelin and the Who and kind of go, yeah, you know what? That stuff's kind of old. It's It's been around for 12, 13, 14 years. <laughs> right. Uh, right. I'm not sure I really want to hear that. And then on the other side... There were our, our our people in our late 20s into our 30s who were hearing some of the newer rock and some of the newer music, and it just didn't have that authentic ring that some of the music from the early 70s and, and late 60s did. So I could feel this schism forming, and there wasn't a damn thing I could do about it because back then, all rock stations were the same. You played everything from the Beatles to the Cars. Uh, the Stones to U2. I mean, you you played the full spectrum of yeah. rock because that's what the format was. And that's when I started thinking, what if there was a format that was basically meet the Beatles, maybe right up into the cars? What would that what would that be like? Really focusing on the really good stuff, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, all these iconic artists. So that was the idea that was on the table. I had no idea it was going to be big. I I felt demographically it would have a shot from the standpoint that it was aimed right at baby boomers who at the time were very much in that kind of 25 to 34, 25 to 40 age cell. So I knew there were a hell of a lot of them. Yep. And, I knew, and I knew the music was good, but I had no idea the music was this good. That's I mean, right. now I get it. Uh, it took a while. But well, it's easier once you innovate. Everybody sees it then and goes, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, well, that's part of it. But, you know, the other thing is that, I mean, there's not a lot of music that people are going to listen to 100 years after it's written and produced, right? right. And, you know, all the classics like Beethoven and Tchaikovsky and Handel and Brahms and, I mean, all that stuff, I mean, literally has stood the test of time. And no, no, so listen, I, you, you can get closer than that. I have this thing called Spotify, and you could pull up songs from the 1940s. I'm going to say that to you right quick and go, hey, you know, the 1940s, you go back and you look at music on playlists from the 1940s, you don't recognize anything. Yep. Now, you, you think that's not a big deal, but I, I would like to invite you to look at the 1980s versus right now. It's basically the same time as from 1980 until back then. Yep. OK, but so what the point you're making is that this music was really resonating. Correct. 
It was, and it wasn't on the radio very much at that point for a couple of reasons. That was when the hot hits format was just oh, yeah. all over the radio, right? Mike Joseph was running around making a ton of dough uh, with the phrase hot hits, and MTV had just come out. Right. So everything was skewed, new, today, hot, pop. And here I am, you know, with a card deck of, uh, you know, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the Who, uh, right, all the, all the old stuff. So, I mean, part of it was that radio at that moment in time was really skewed heavily new, especially rock radio. And th this format kind of came along and sort of undercut all of that. And it was, it was pretty amazing. Uh, you know, to really watch the disruption happen right before your eyes. It was devastating for a number of stations that didn't make it. I mean, some some survived. Riff is a good example uh, of that. But uh, there were many, many others that uh, got upended by a classic rock upstart and never regained their equilibrium or their ratings again. Listen, Fred, I don't know if you'll like this, but I have told people forever that this is this is just what I believe. This is what I do. I believe it's what you do. Uh, I don't practice programming. I practice creative destruction. <laughs> that's what it I is. I like that. I like that. That's, ex that's exactly what it is. All right, listen. So once there were no consultants and then radio began to get a little more sophisticated, how did you know? hey, it's time for me to jump in and be a consultant. God, I'd love to tell you there was this whole calculated plan. Uh, I did not have a consultant at Riff, and they were around at that point, uh, already in pretty big numbers, especially in rock. And um, I really didn't want one, so maybe I'm not as curious a guy as I said I was, but... I just felt that I knew my market really well. I had a good handle on the research. I knew the station ex ex excessively well, and I knew all the personalities. So I, I didn't really look at the gang that was out there and really feel that they could do me a whole lot of good. And then I turned around and become one. <laughs> well, well, no, wait a minute. Let, let me say this to you. We have interviewed Guy Zapolian. And John Sebastian, I'm just going to name those two guys. They were early adapters of research to confirm what they believe to be true. But you see, you're different. You came from the research side. And so you had a natural, I think, head start. It helped to have that base to know because research really is a gut adjuster, yeah, yeah, it is. Right? I mean, it settles a lot of arguments. I mean, how many radio stations, I mean, have you seen where you walk in the front door and the GM's arguing with the PD on some kind of philosophical level, right, about the music or the morning guy or whatever? And it, it's not that research solves all problems and puts everything back in order, but it does tend to sort things out. And if you if you have a good research study behind you or uh, a way of tabbing the audience pretty well, um, it can really eliminate a lot of the you know arguments and debates and all the things that I think really beat the life out of uh, an internal culture at a radio station. So, well, look, what you're talking about is anxiety. 
Right. You tap down the Correct. anxiety and get the job done. Correct. To a great degree, that's right. So when I walked out of Riff, I, I was thinking maybe I just go back to do the research thing. And, you know, one of the benefits of having done, uh, you know, been an audience researcher for a company like Maggot is that I was very used to traveling around and going from market to market and client to client. I mean, you know this. I mean, not everybody can do that. Not everybody can travel and keep it all together and do phone calls while you're on the road and really just juggle all the stuff. But I knew how to do that from Maggot. So I was thinking about maybe going back and doing that uh, with another company. And then I started getting the taps on the shoulders. And I had my dad on one hand, and I had Ed Christian of Saga on the other hand. Right, Ed was an old friend. In fact, I was actually Ed's academic advisor at Michigan State, which was a joke really? because he knew more about radio than I ever would. Uh, but they had to assign him to somebody, so they gave him to me. And uh, the, the day I walked out of Riff, my first phone message was from Ed. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm not really sure. And he said, great, spend the summer doing research for my stations. Uh, you'll you know, definitely keep your skills in order. I'll get cheap research. And then you can figure out what what the hell you're going to do with your life. Brilliant. And he really ended up putting me in business. I mean, my initial clients were uh, his stations, FM 99, WNOR in uh, Norfolk, Hampton Roads, uh, was my first uh, rock station. And I had enough of a client cushion that I could actually look at the classic rock thing and go, you know what, I can do this. I mean, even though nobody knows who the hell I am, um, I, I, I can put a format out there and maybe it'll work and it took a while. <laughs> well, but, it, but look, that's, I think that's a big deal because especially back in that time, you're dealing with something that you could do that others couldn't do or wouldn't do, but yes. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about who you are today, because let me tell you who you're supposed to be. Because you don't, it's clear to me that you have no idea what the hell you're supposed to be doing. You are supposed to be this old guy who stands on his toes and says, get off my lawn. (laughs) But you're kind of screwing that up. Okay. In fact, you talk about, and I'm going to, I'm not using your words, but I'm sort of using your words. You talk about being at the intersection where old media meets technology and you, Fred, lean technology. What? What's happening in your life? We're back to that question where you start with somebody and you go, what happened to you? Well, it's the research. And once we started doing the tech surveys, that's really what opened the door. I mean, the re- quick history on this, Lloyd. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the email database thing started happening in the 90s, yeah. most radio stations looked at that and said, hey, this will be a great promotional tool. We'll be able to tell people about our special weekends and stuff. I looked at it and I thought, yeah, we can do all that, but it's a great research tool. I mean, all of a sudden now, we have access to our P1s and P2s. I mean, we can can reach them and we can do it really inexpensively. And so I started playing around with the idea. Buzz Knight, who was working at ZLX in 
uh, Boston had just put a new morning show on, and he came to me and said, you know, we can wait six months for the Arbitron book to come out to tell us whether we screwed it up, or can you give me a read on maybe how the show is doing after only four or five weeks on the air? And I said, sure, let's use your database and find out. And and we did it, and it was really cool, and it worked well. So I was doing some projects along those lines, and then 9-11 happens. Mm. And what a lot of people don't realize is that as tragic as that was, 9-11 occurred right at the beginning of the fall book. And all the, right, all these radio stations, especially in my world, rock stations, classic rock stations, had contests booked, billboards planned, all kinds of promotion. And we start getting all these calls from clients going, Fred, what do we do? I mean, the Twin Towers just went down and people are freaked out. Can we have a funny morning show and can we give stuff away? That was a real question during that time. Remember that? I mean, it was like, oh, "Oh my God, I don't know what to tell them. And so we ganged together, I think, something like 45 radio stations that we were working with or were our clients. And I wrote a questionnaire and we popped it out there. And in 36 hours, we had thousands of responses And it was very telling. It was great. I mean, it really gave us great info. So I started doing those kind of studies. And then a few years later in 2005, I I don't really remember how this started. Our digital guy, Tim Davis, and I were talking a lot in those days about streaming and, and the Internet's impact on radio. And I, I was very concerned on the one hand but also saw some amazing opportunities on the other. And that's when we decided to do tech survey. And the whole idea behind tech survey was what is the audience doing when they're not listening to us? Uh, what are, you know, what are they seeing on TV? What digital tools are they using? Do they have a cell phone? Uh, that was kind of right when the smartphone thing was happening. It was right when social media was launching so the oh it's a whole new generation of technology exactly exactly so i've i've been on this end of things of pushing radio to wake up and and get going here on the digital front and in the early years it was a little painful because a lot of people looked at it it's still painful it is still painful but (laughs) it is (laughs) But uh, I'm happy to join you, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But, you know, it, it, it really back then was almost like, are you anti-radio? Why? Right. Why, why are you talking about streaming? I mean, streaming is nobody makes any money with streaming. Look at Pandora. I mean, they're they're and hemorrhaging the enemy, money. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. You don't want to. No, into that. no, no. I mean, we're radio and we're always going to be there. And, you know, 98 percent of the world listens to us every week so um i was definitely fighting in windmills in the early years but uh the tech surveys have been a great tool for us and and uh tech survey 2022 is in the field right now and i i get so excited and so charged up when i look at the data and i look at the trends and I see what's going on, and that's really what has helped us look around the corner. I mean, we would we would not have started the mobile app company if it weren't for Tech Survey, because Tech Survey really helped us see around those corners, and that 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 is a hugely important thing 
for people in our position to be able to do. Absolutely. And listen, if you are within the sound of, of Fred's voice and you're hearing this, I just want to remind everybody that this is what happens when you leave a research guy alone hmm. and he sees something new and he's curious. He is going to go in that direction. I want to know, you know, look, maybe this is not true. Maybe you've always been this content generator, but it seems to me that your content generation has expanded. What do the brothers think about this? You know, the, the Earp brothers that you have with you there? Have we lost Fred? <laughs> Fred, are you Bo, there? Do you have me? Yeah, yep, I, am. I hear you, you now. Me, uh, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, it's really weird. The phone's kind of coming in and out. Sorry about that. It's the clubhouse wonk. We <laughs> get just a little. It keeps you on your toes. No, right? it does. It does. I'm 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 looking at my bars. What was that question again? I was like fidgeting. Well, well listen, look. It, it oh, seems content to generation. Me, yeah, that's yeah. Right. You become more of a content generator, not less. What did the brothers think about this? Did they go, "Hey, what what you doing over there?" No, the 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 brothers learned a long time ago that that um, just let them go. <laughs> right, just that's just Fred. just let them go, and and you know he'll he'll either get bored or he'll he'll dive in. Um, the big content thing for me the past few years has been the blog. Uh, Tim Davis, who I referenced uh, earlier, was our first digital guy. Sadly, he passed away a few years ago, but uh, in the early years, he was really the guy who turned me on to a lot of the ideas and thinking that I ended up adopting. And he came to me in the early 2000s and he said, you know, you got a lot of things on your mind and there's a lot of things you talk about you should have a blog. And I didn't get it. You know, I just looked at, oh, really? right. I looked at the whole thing and said, well, who's going to read it? <laughs> and, <laughs> who's going to read my stuff? Right. And, and how are they going to find yeah. it and what's going to happen? And he said, no, if, if it's good, people will find it. And I asked him, well, how often do I need to write something? And he said, well, just often enough that it becomes a habit. And I said, well, Tim, habits are like things you do every day. I mean, mm -hmm. does this mean I have to write a, a post every day? And he said, no, it doesn't mean anything. And I thought, yeah, it does. I need to write a post every day. So every day since February of 2005, every day that is a Monday through Friday kind of day, I write something. And, and you take the weekends off. I take Ooh. the weekends off. And I've been cheating a little bit in the past year. Thursdays are now throwback Thursday. I, I mean, oh. Lloyd, I've, I've, if if all these radio shows can do best ofs, I can do of I can do a damn throwback Thursday once a week. Hey, the Wall Street Journal does it. See, so yeah. that's the thing, and and the, the blog has really been a great outlet for me. I I become a better writer. Uh, I've become a better thinker. It's like anything, you know, it's the old Malcolm Gladwell thing that if you do anything 10, for, what is it, 10,000 hours or something? That's it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about that number, but if you do anything enough, whether it's podcast or write a blog or, or be on the radio or do a research study or whatever, you're going to get pretty good at it after a while. So I've gotten to that point where the blog has become... The thing, and I've told people this before, 
I think it got me through the pandemic, to be honest with you. I mean, oh, wow. yeah, 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 I think it did. I, I think, you know, yes, even though I've had businesses to run and clients to service, I think having the blog and having that kind of sense of obligation and purpose every day has been very helpful. Purpose is huge. Okay, so now I'm going to put a little pressure on you because I have four more questions. We try to wrap this up in about an hour. We're going to have a tough time right now. Okay, so here's question number one. I want you to hit just a couple of quick highlights. Let's talk about you and uh, CES. Uh, you are like me. You're not satisfied with living in the moment. You lean forward. Can you tell us uh, just quickly a little bit about this year's convention, what you saw and what it really made you think? Well, it was really weird this year because of COVID. Uh, normally, right. uh, 170, 180,000 people go uh, this year. Everything's weird because of COVID. Exactly. So uh, yes. maybe 43, 44, 45,000 showed up. A number of exhibitors canceled, uh, very high profile. It was a lot of really bad ink actually going into CES. But uh, the organizer, uh, Gary Shapiro, who is the CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, is a friend. He lives a half a mile away from me, as it turned out. And Gary decided, I think, last year uh, when they did the virtual CES, that 2022 would not be that way. So it, it was a great show, Lloyd, in that there were fewer people. Usually CES feels like being in a subway for three days. I mean, you're constantly scrunched and bumped and everything else. It was a lot easier to navigate. There was some great stuff to see. Uh, many exhibitors showed up, and it, w- it was a great show. It, it really was. Um, you know, the automotive sector, uh, and being from Detroit, is just a happy accident. But the automotive sector is really shaken and bacon. You know, it between electrification, autonomous, uh, and yes. and then just a number of screens that are showing up in cars. I mean, you know, for people love visual, they do. And so, what are we going to do? Right? We're the audio medium. That's We're right. right. We're on Clubhouse today. We are used to doing audio, and all of a sudden now. Uh, certainly the passengers in the car are all going to be watching stuff. I mean, who knows what the driver's going to do. Yeah, i got news for you. The driver's going to be doing that crap, too. You bet they are. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I think we're at that point where radio needs to be doing video, not just as a hobby, but really developing a visual identity. And Fred, there's a part of me that says they have to develop these self-driving cars or, or, you know, automatic the cars that drive themselves because we're all idiots. <laughs> we are. We're idiots. We, I mean, now we got these devices basically at the end of our fingertips. Are you kidding? Yeah. There's trouble. Oh, there's, there's huge trouble. What, you know what's really weird? We go around from exhibit to exhibit and we see these incredible vehicles and they're just equipped, I mean, and they're beautiful and and, and so an exhibitor is walking us through all the stuff. And then Fred or Paul turn to the exhibitor and go, is there an AM, AM FM radio in that thing? <laughs> and, right. and the exhibitor kind of goes, I don't know. Uh, gee, uh, we're not really thinking about that. Um, let me look. And the bottom line is, is that they're not thinking about us and where we're going to end up in the middle of the dashboard and 
And what- there's somebody really smart in the radio business somewhere that should get off of their butt and create the thing that helps them think about us. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yes, sir. I think it's essential. Fred, let me ask you this. Why does radio need to innovate? Why do we need to do that? <laughs> well, be, be, <laughs> it's an easy one, actually. Uh, not really. Oh, yeah. Because we compete against everybody now. You know, when it used to be we just compete against stations up and down the dial or the second country station or or whatever. Yeah, you needed to innovate, but kind of within a box. Now we're competing against everybody. And, you know, I think one of the rules, Lloyd, that we all got taught early on that we have to be consistent, predictable, uh, the quarter hour needs to be a microcosm of the rest of the radio station. Mm-hmm. It's not that that is bad advice, but... Uh, all those things are true. They all those, right? all those things are true, and yet we still need to surprise. We, ne- we need to delight. We need to do new stuff. We need to give people a reason to pay attention to us or they will just treat us like a utility. And so I look at innovation and, and coming out of CES, I mean, there's a reason why CES is scheduled the first week of the year. I mean, they want you to go, but they want you to take it in and take a deep breath and come back to your station or your office or wherever you work and spread that innovation out the other 12 months of the year. And, I, you know, to me, it's, it's just exciting to, you know, want to do different things and not just do the same old thing over and over again. Even as a program director, you know, when it was the 8th annual this and the 12th annual that, I'd get bored. Yep. Now, here's the real pivotal question that everybody's waiting on. <laughs> so, look, yeah. why is it that the radio industry has such challenges with innovation or even handling innovation. Why? why how do I ask this right? Um, You'll ask how me. do you and I encourage radio to take more calculated risk? <clears throat> well, there's a lot of fear of failure and doing yes. poorly in the ratings. And, and I think the axiom that playing it safe will generate more ratings is something of a fallacy. I mean, when you actually look at the top-rated stations in most markets, you actually see a station that actually breaks the rules and does it brilliantly, right? They, they do it with people. They do it with promotions. They do surprise. They do delight. But not everybody is cut out to do that kind of radio. I mean, I I think there's only certain people who really gravitate to that and make it work. I think the other piece, though, to answer your question is that many CEOs and owners and management people are not asking their employees and their programmers to be innovative, right? I mean, I think they're asking the opposite. Exactly. They're saying, keep it, keep it between the white lines Beacon. Listen, as long as as long as you're going to bring that up, I, I want you to take this from me right now, okay, Fred Jacobs, and I want you to spread this far and wide unless you totally disagree with it. The challenge with radio and innovation right now is that there are too many situations where they're asking you not to lose as much instead of asking you to win. 
It's right. Uh, that that that's exactly right. And I mean, look, it's like watching football. I mean, most of the passes you see are the little five, seven, eight, nine, ten yard little dinks and <laughs> and stuff. And, and nothing's there's nothing wrong. There's with nothing that. wrong with that. Okay. You can move the ball up the field and all that kind of stuff. But the game gets more exciting and more interesting when you throw bombs and. All kinds of things can happen when you throw bombs. I mean, you know, good things and bad things. But I, I, for me, that's my style of radio. That's what I enjoy. That's what I really dig into. And I think right now, that's kind of what innovation is all about. I mean, we need to take good risks. And I think we have the ability to do it, and we're, we're not stepping up and, and making that happen. So, Well, and I don't think either one of us, and I think we're similar in a lot of ways. The, our worldview seems to be similar as we go further into the innovation century. That's what I call it. And I'm just going to say, look, we're not asking people to take ridiculous, crazy risk. That's not what we're doing. We're saying, okay, the, you know what? The five- and seven-yard pass, that's cool. Use that. You know, running the ball straight up the middle, please use that. Okay, well, there are going to be situations that require, that request, that compel innovative solutions. And those can propel you way forward, right? Well, they can. And I think you kind of have to look at your assets. I mean, look, the industry has argued for deregulation now consistently and and to a great degree gotten its way and and i think if you're running a cluster of stations you got five stations and one's a big winner and maybe two or three are kind of like in the mid-pack but there's the one dog right the perennial loser the one where you're changing formats every two years and you know one one time it's hot ac and the next time it's the second country and the next time it's the second classic rock station and it's never going to work so why not take that dog frequency and really do something cool something really different something that people are going to go holy crap did you hear that radio station at 1079 i mean wow they're doing something that nobody ever does anymore on the radio I don't know what that is. I mean, for each market, it's going to be a different solution. But if you're not thinking about pushing it and disrupting and doing something interesting, then what was all that consolidation really all about? Oh, I think we know what that was about, Fred. We do indeed. Okay. (laughs) So one last question for you. Look, look, nobody knows the future. I always like to put that first because it releases my guests from pressure. Okay. Yeah. But but look, let's look through (laughs) your crystal ball a little bit. Yes. What do you see as the future of radio? Uh, The future of radio is personalities, period, paragraph. I mean, that... That, that is it right there. When you, when you look at the landscape and you look at how radio is going to compete against all these audio sources, I mean, what is the one thing that we have that nobody else has? We have proprietary personalities. And maybe the sub part of that is, and we're in Philadelphia or we're in Detroit or we're in Des Moines or wherever we may be. So, I know a lot of people just love to take shots at the whole local thing and there is no such thing or what does it mean really or people don't care. I think people very much care about what... I'll go this far. 
I'll go this far. Go. At some point, one of these tech guys is going to reach out and they're going to come up with an idea surrounding local yep. and it's going to explode. Yep. Well, and you, and that should be radio. Well, it a radio sh- guy should do that. It should be radio, but yet when you look at Axios and and you look at so many of the other uh, big media sources, they're all diving into local. They see the opportunity Correct. and they see that local media has, for all intents and purposes, dropped the ball. Um, so, okay. yeah, I think I think that's the path forward, Lloyd. All right. So listen, Fred, I hope that you are going to stick around with us for a few minutes in case some of our folks here have maybe a question or two they might like to ask you in a moment. Does that sound OK? That sounds great. I'd be honored. All right, listen, we launched Innovation and Audio and the Radio Rally because we do these live events on Clubhouse every Monday and Wednesday, both at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, just to encourage radio pros at all levels, encourage innovation at all levels, and to help encourage your career in audio. By the way, we also have special events as well. If you missed our recent Q1 sales exclusive event called the 2022 Sales Liftoff, guess what? You can subscribe to the Encouragers, the Radio Rally podcast, or the Encouragers Innovation and Audio podcast. That's right, we have two. And you can hear the entire episode, including actionable items to help your local sales team boost revenue in Q1 and in Q2. By the way, yeah, it's true. We're going to have one of these sales-exclusive events each and every quarter. The next one is scheduled for April 14th. We're already planning that out. It's going to be so much fun and really, really meaningful, purposeful things that can help your local sellers get it done. Listen, when we do these live events, we make it clear every single time that you, you know, we're not pushing people to come up on stage and talk. Some people, many actually just want to listen. And we want this to be a safe place for anyone to just do that. We don't want you to feel like you have pressure to do that. At the same time, if you have a question for our guest, we want to offer you two ways to get that done. One, you can raise your hand. If you look down on the app itself on your smartphone, you will see a little hand raised over a notebook. You just hit that and that is our notification that you want to come up on stage and ask our guest a question. If you click on that, of course, uh, we'll bring you right up to the stage. Uh, We do ask that you uh, mute your microphone when you come up on the stage because the audio can be a little wonky if everybody has an open mic. Uh, The other way that we get this done, of course, is pretty simple. Uh, we ask that you IM us, send us a private message through the app itself. Uh, you don't even have to get up in front of everybody and, and have the conversation or anything. We won't identify you. We'll just ask the question and you get your answer anyway. Coming up next Monday, January 24th. We have a special guest. Of course we do. We do it every Monday. Mike Savage, the director and general manager of 88.9 WE. KU in Lexington, Kentucky will be here, and uh, you definitely want to be here for what he will give us, which is a different perspective. By the way, if you have not joined the Encouragers tonight, please do it while you're on the app and while you're here and share it with others, because we are trying to spread the singular idea that radio people need encouragement, that people in audio need encouragement, that innovation needs that encouragement. Fred, I I do have a question for you from our audience. Um, What what does your research say about classic rock 
how mm-hmm. long cra- classic rock can be classic rock that we all know, or is that in fact changing? <laughs> I know, right? <clears throat> yeah. So uh, when I first started this thing, uh, I thought there was just one way to do classic rock. And what I realized is that uh, the classic rock format can be fragmented in any number of ways. And we've seen this work, right? Classic hits, classic rock, hard classic rock, you name it. I mean, it, it, it can, depending on the situation and the cluster. I mean, there is no one way to do this. And I know I sound very consultant-esque when I say that, um, but you you can't look at a style of music and just say, well, that's not classic rock or it is classic rock. I think so much of it depends on your audience and how you've kind of shaped them. It's not a really good answer to that question, but it, it really depends on so many different factors. So sorry, I probably didn't answer that I think you know what I think that's an expected that's an expected question for you. I think you did fine. Brian, do you have a question for our guest? Yeah, I do. Fred, I was curious, you've done so much with the apps. Are you seeing uh, stations able to get listeners to leave what would have been in the old days a call in to the top forty night guy or gal or the classic rock uh, show that creates that listener back and forth with with the host or do you see in the future hosts utilizing technology like clubhouse to generate the phone calls that then they put on the air later what what do you see as far as uh, that in your crystal ball or or ways that uh, talent can innovate Most of the apps that we do, Brian, it's a good question. Most of the apps that we do have an open mic feature on them, which allows uh, any listener to be able to record any kind of message. And you can set, you know, whether it's a 20 second limit or a 30 second limit. And it sounds great. I mean, it's like regular smartphone quality. It gets zipped right to the station and whoever's on the air or producing the show uh, can go through them and either edit them or decide which ones to uh, choose. I I, th- I think it is the answer to nobody's calling on the phone and phones don't matter anymore, which is, in fact, uh, an issue. But it does take work to teach the audience how to use the app to make that happen. And that takes a concerted effort on the part of the radio station and a program director who is insistent that you make it work. Um, but I think it's a great tool to be able to get listener voices on the air, not in a dialogue, but it, at least to bring listeners to the radio station and, and to give the station a more connected feel. Well, and give them purpose as well. You, you purpose by a listener. I know that's not a word, but, uh, but it's that's, my word. But, but that's what it is. I mean, that's right. exactly right. You validate them, right? Exactly right. That is a huge deal because in our modern society that we live in, this fabulous innovation century where we all have our walking smartphones and Elon Musk is going ours, okay? People want to be heard. That's what they want. So here's another question for you, Fred. I know that you're so excited to answer all of our questions. I right? am. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a book that you recommend for people to read about technology, change, or the future? Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> are you first? Are you a reader? Do you read I am, I am a reader, but I I mostly read crap. Actually, oh nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I do. I read uh, you know serial killing books and mysteries oh, nice. and Swedish uh, uh, crime stories and stuff like that. Wow, is is there? I don't know. I I got so many marketing books to me are are just kind of. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I I enjoyed Seth Godin's books a lot. I think because they were short and and very logical, and you could kind of take some of his ideas and and put them to work in in your own framework. But I I'm one of these people, believe it or not. I mean, and people buy me marketing books all the time. Oh, they do. Oh, oh yeah, and um, I'm I'm not fond of of many of them. I just kind of find that they just sort of mush together, and it's like diet books, right? I mean, it's it's or you know or diets themselves i mean everybody's got one and none of them seem to work so right? you I, don't. I, I don't know you, that there, there's a work, book that you can work, read that right exactly right. right so so listen um it's interesting to have you on and and to see how you think and i'm so grateful that we've done this with you and that you've taken this time with us and i'm just going to go ahead and put my marker down if we have a round table of some kind in the future you think you might like to participate with us I'm in. I really enjoy this format, and it's fun talking to you, Lloyd. You're a really great thinker and an interesting guy, and uh, I, I think the Clubhouse format is fun. I haven't done much Clubhouse stuff. Right when the uh, app first came out, uh, I did a little bit, and then I just kind of gravitated away. But this is great, and I recognize uh, some faces here. Brian, good to see you. Lois, oh, my goodness. I mean, why why did you hang in here and listen to this? Because you know a good hunk of it. Uh, but no, it's uh, it's really nice, and it was a really fun format and a great thing. So invite me back anytime, Lloyd. I will, and I will say this too. You know, even when I ask you the question about uh, books, you gave us a nugget, which was if you're going to use words, edit your stuff, would you? People don't <laughs> have a lot of time, okay? Yep. So you know, I mean, look, that's wisdom, right? Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, right, well, I mean, listen, yeah. Thank you for joining us every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for innovation and audio. We do this every single week. Remember, if you know somebody that you would like to hear as a guest on innovation and audio, it's real simple. Just email me, F-O-R-D at RainmakerPathway.com. A very huge thank you to Fred Jacobs for being our patient and giving guest at this live event that will result in a podcast. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thanks to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast and JustJoeProductions.com for creating our audio footprint and distributing our podcast. And by the way, uh, our innovation and audio uh, podcast from the Encouragers, which is called the Encouragers Innovation and Audio Podcast, will be available this episode within minutes, okay, of the end of this actual live event. Uh, thanks to Joe Kelly for producing our podcast, JustJoeProductions.com, for creating our audio footprint. I think I actually said that before. Uh, please remember, if you don't remember anything else, be kinder than you have.
to be. Thank you for being a part of innovation and audio with the encouragers and good night.